0: The title of our message this morning is The Great Commission in Action. Uh, But uh, we're not going to look at Matthew 28. Uh, We're actually going to look at the book of Acts. Um, Because the book of Acts is really the historical account of the apostles uh, putting the great commission into action. Um, The book of Acts begins with a restatement from Jesus of... The Great Commission, uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. Um, That's a restatement of the Great Commission, and you can outline the book of Acts, according to chapter 1, verse 8, when the apostles were witnessing in Jerusalem, which resulted in persecution, which uh, caused the apostles to spread out to Judea and Samaria. And then from then on, uh, particularly with the ministry of Paul, we read of the church uh, bringing the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth, to the uh, outer, um, throughout the Roman Empire, right? Um, and so, one way we can look at the book of Acts is, it is a historical account of how the, the early church, under the leadership of the apostles, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, carried out the Great Commission. And what we're going to look at this morning, are as we look through Acts, are the core convictions that drove them to do what they did. And What exactly did the apostles do? I can't put it into better words than what one persecutor of the early church said in Acts 17.6. In Acts 17.6, the early church was accused of turning the world upside down. And that's a good way of putting what they did, right? Because in a matter of a few decades, the church went from a small group of believers uh, huddled together in the upper room to spanning all throughout the Roman Empire, in a matter of a few decades, right? Uh, And so much so that even today, our calendar system, whether you use AD or BCE, before the Common Era, uh, it doesn't really matter because the reference point is the birth of Christ. Because even if uh, modern-day scholars use BCE, well, when did the Common Era start? At the birth of Christ. Um, They literally turned the world upside down and... We're going to look at the core convictions that allow them to do this. And this is very important for us today. Just the other week, uh, I was watching the news with uh, one of my boys. And you know how in the nightly news, when they would go through the, the headlines of, of for the day, uh, before they would go into kind of more in-depth coverage? We just watched the, the headline section. And after the, the, the headlines... After the anchor went through the headlines, my son couldn't help but comment, today was a bad day, huh? And there's a lot of bad news, right? Uh, All over, politically, uh, geopolitically, right? Um, And in the providence of God, he has placed us in this generation, uh, and there has never been a better time for the church to be the church than where, where we are, the time that we are in right now. Uh, because let's face it, uh, our world could use a good turning upside down. And we're going to look at the core convictions that the apostles had held on to, and by God's grace, he would use us to turn our world upside down. So these core convictions, uh, there's five of them, let me give them to you real quick. First is the priority of the local church. The priority of the local church. Second, the authority of the word. Third, the call to preach. Fourth, the mandate for discipleship. And fifth, the preeminence of Christ. So we'll go through these one at a time. So first, the priority of the local church. The local church is God's designated hub for carrying out the Great Commission. It is through the local church that the Great Commission will be carried out. God designed it this way. Uh, if you look at Acts, we know that the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2, right? It grows and matures even under the face of persecution. This was how, again, the church spread out. This was how the church went all the way up to Antioch, Antioch, Syria, just north of Israel. Antioch, Syria, the, the church there, becomes Paul's sending church, right? Right? This is a church that commissions Paul to become a missionary. This is uh, the home base for Paul before he would go to his three mi- missionary journeys. And Paul takes three missionary journeys. First, focusing on the southern area of the Roman province of Galatia. We read about that in Acts 13 and 14. The second missionary journey focuses on the Roman province of Macedonia. And we read about that from Acts 15 through 18. The third missionary journey focuses on the province of Asia, particularly the city of Ephesus, and we read about this from Acts 18 through 21. And in each of these missionary journeys, Paul's pattern is very consistent. He would preach the gospel in the synagogues. Being a rabbi, he had that privilege. He would continue to do that until he was kicked out of the synagogue by the Jews, by the Jewish leaders. After that happens, he continues to preach in an alternate location to the Gentiles of that city. And wherever disciples are made, wherever people are converted, come to faith in Christ, he establishes churches. He plants churches. And these churches, in turn, engage, take part in, in, in the work of missions. How do they do that? Well, first, just by their own witness. As they would gather together to to worship and equip believers, uh, the, the, the lives of the individual believers gets changed, and they become witnesses for the gospel. So just their own personal witness. Firstly, and secondly, they would also send workers with Paul. As believers mature and are discipled unto maturity through these churches, these churches that Paul planted would then send co-laborers with Paul. Examples of these are Timothy, who was from Derby, uh, uh, Paul's first missionary journey, and Epaphroditus from Philippi, uh, Paul's second missionary journey. If we look at some of the churches planted through these missionary journeys, we'll uh, see this pattern in, 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 in greater detail. So let's look at the, the church in Philippi, for example. So again, uh, the church in Philippi was planted during Paul's second missionary journey, Acts 16. The first European convert we read of here, uh, Lydia. Uh, Paul had a very impactful ministry in this city, so much so that he um, met some opposition. You'll recall uh, there was a slave... Uh, gal who was possessed by a demon uh, and Paul uh, rebuked the demon and the demon left but the owner of that slave gal was uh, they were angry at Paul because it seemed like they were using her as some sort of a fortune teller or something like that and so their source of income uh, was gone because uh, the demon left Uh, and so they got Paul and Barnabas in trouble with the city magistrates right? and so they were imprisoned and then overnight Paul was uh, delivered from prison. The prison guard gets saved. Remember that? This was how the church was planted. These are some of the first members of the church in Philippi. A few months to a year later, when Paul writes to the Philippians, in Philippians 1-3, we, uh, we read this. This is how Paul refers to them. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This was a church plant by by, by today's standards, right? We would consider the Philippi at this point to be a church plant. Yet this church plant, Paul considered to be a partner in the gospel ministry, right? Uh, they were engaged in missions from the very, very beginning. And again, like I mentioned earlier, when Paul was... Uh, in prison in Rome at the end of the book of Acts, uh, the church in, in Philippi actually sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to serve Paul as he was under house arrest in Rome. Let's look at the church in Ephesus. Uh, Paul visited, first visited the city of Ephesus uh, towards the end of his second missionary journey as he was headed back to Jerusalem, uh, but it was the focus of his third missionary journey. He stayed there a total of three years. And for two years, Paul taught at the school of Tyrannus, which was likely a school hall. Uh, likely during their siesta time, uh, Paul took advantage of a vacant uh, facility, uh, just like we are right now, uh, and, uh, and used that to, to teach, to teach unhindered by the Jews. Right? And the result of this in Acts 19.10 says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. Now, it's not that all the residents of the province came into the school of Tyrannus to be personally taught by Paul. What likely happened was that as the church matured, as believers in the city of Ephesus matured, their witness amplified, so much so that everybody in the whole province knew about Jesus, knew about the gospel, right? Right? And interestingly, the church in Colossae has a connection with the church in Ephesus. Now, Paul never went to Colossae. He was not the one who planted the church in Colossae, even though Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. Uh, The church in Colossae was likely planted by Epaphras, who most likely got saved during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus. Uh, Because Ephesus and Colossae were both in the same province. They were in the province of of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. So in other words, the church in Colossae was the fruit of the ministry in Ephesus. Again, at this point, these are all church plants. These are all churches within a few years old. Yet, what do we see them doing? They are engaged in missions. Uh, They are planting churches. They are witnessing. We see the church functioning as a local hub for the Great Commission. See, the apostles were faithful to their commission from Jesus. But how did they implement this command? They preached the gospel, they planted churches, and these churches, in turn, joined the apostles in preaching the gospel and planting other churches. Again, the local church is God's designated hub for carrying out the Great Commission. Uh, God encoded missions into the DNA of the church. A church that is truly a church, a church that is a faithful church, a church according to New Testament standards, is a church that is engaged in missions. It is not just a department or sub-ministry of the church. It is part of the essence of the church. It is part of its being. Like We normally think of Acts 2 as the beginning of the, uh, of the church, right? But seeing it in context, the church was birthed, as the apostles were engaged in carrying out the Great Commission. So the Great Commission and the church go hand in hand. It's it's not just that uh, only a select people uh, from the church are, are involved with missions. The whole church is part of the mission of the Great Commission. But how exactly is the local church a hub for the Great Commission? Well, primarily through the ministry of the Word, the faithful and clear teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Through this, unbelievers will hear the word and be saved. Through this, believers will grow in maturity. And as they grow in maturity, believers will be equipped for the work of the ministry. As they are equipped for the work of the ministry, then they themselves will be evangelizing, sharing the gospel, making an impact for Christ. And as believers in the local church mature, the witness of the local church will be amplified. The For any... Any church, doesn't matter if it's a church plan. doesn't matter if it's uh, a mega church. I remember John MacArthur asked this once uh, at Grace Community Church. Uh, how many, just by show of hands, how many of you guys got saved because somebody, some, somebody shared the gospel with you? Almost everybody, right? Uh, as opposed to you got saved because you came to a concert. I knew some people who have gotten saved by going through events like that but far more have gotten saved through the personal witness of individual believers. You see for any local church the personal witness of individual members is always going to be the most impactful the most effective outreach ministry of any local church. Doesn't it, it cross culturally? Doesn't doesn't matter if it's here in Ohio, California, in the Philippines personal witness of individual believers, is always going to be the most effective outreach of any local church. And as some believers in the local church mature, as believers in the local church mature, some will be called by God for full-time gospel ministry, whether domestically, whether in another city, whether overseas, right? But the question you need to be considering is, are you plugged into to this church? And by plugged in, are, I mean, are you involved in this church beyond just the, you know, the, the Sunday gatherings? Are you giving, not just financially, but of your time, of your life? Are you a member of this church? I mean, if not, what, what, what prevents that from happening? Because being part of the church, we have the privilege, you have the privilege of taking part in something that is very near and dear to our Lord's heart. If you are not plugged into the church, you are missing out. Second core conviction for carrying out the Great Commission is the authority of the Word. The Word of God is God's designated playbook for carrying out the Great Commission. We are not free to carry out the Great Commission in any way that we see fit just as we are not free to worship God any way we see fit. Just look at what happened to Nadab and Abihu, right? Leviticus chapter 10. They deviated from God's clear instructions on how he wanted to be worshipped, and it did not end well for them, right? Well, in Acts, uh, if you turn to Acts 15, we see the early church, particularly how they respond to, ...to a situation that was quite new to them, right? Um, Acts 15, you'll remember, is known as the Jerusalem Council. And at this point in time, the church was entering into uncharted territory. Because prior to this, the church was 100% Jewish, right? Uh, The savior of the church, the head of the church, of our church, is Jesus Christ. He is a Jew, right? All his apostles were Jewish... The church was birthed in the capital city of the Jews, Jerusalem, during a festival of the Jews, Pentecost. Right, So everybody was Jewish. And they all grew up under Jewish customs, which mandated that they would remain separate from Gentiles. But by the time we get to Acts 15... Uh, God had been saving gentiles. Gentiles had been responding positively to the gospel and had been repenting and believing in Jesus for salvation. So, how would the church handle this? The the fundamental issue that that they were addressing in the Jerusalem council was what must a person do to be saved? Some in the church coming from a Jewish background, particularly the Pharisees, were saying that it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. In other words, Gentiles must become Jews first. They must become proselyte Jews. They, might, they need to convert to Judaism before they can follow Christ. And so the key question was, must a Gentile convert first become a Jew to become a Christian? Right. This has clear gospel implications. How does, how does someone who is not Jewish become a Christian? Do you have to become a Jew first? That's what some were saying. Well, how did the apostles respond? Well, Acts 15, starting in verse 6, we read that Paul first gives his testimony of how God saved the Gentiles in the same way that he saved the Jews. Acts 15, verse 6, says here that both the apostles and the leaders came together to look into this matter. And... After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows a heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So Peter gives his testimony. Acts 5.12 says... And all the multitudes kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter and Paul give their testimony about what they saw was happening, right? And in in the next verse, Acts 15, verse 13, James, the half-brother of our Lord, gives this assessment. He says, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the fallen booth of David, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago." And this is a quote from Amos 9, 11 and 12. And the point of all this was that when it became clear to the apostles that what Peter and Paul had experienced, had observed regarding the salvation of the Gentiles, when it became clear that the salvation of the Gentiles was consistent with the Word of God, with Old Testament prophecy, the solution to the issue became clear as well. So, James concludes in verse 19, Therefore, I judge that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what is strangled, and from blood. Basically, they came to the conclusion that it has always been God's plan from the Old Testament to save Gentiles. And so, the way Jews and Gentiles are saved is exactly the same, by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, they do not have to come under the law. Uh, the provision in verse 20 was more about keeping fellowship with uh, Jews so that Jews and uh, Jewish believers and Gentile believers can enjoy fellowship with one another. Uh, they added the instructions for verse 20. but But the way of salvation for Jews and Gentiles is the same, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what's the point of all of this? When the young church encountered an unfamiliar problem, where did they go to find the solution? They went and looked to the Word of God. Right? They evaluated what they saw. They evaluated their experience through the lens of Scripture. Scripture was authoritative. It was sufficient to provide the solution for the problem that the church had faced. They were committed to the Word of God. They were willing to submit to the authority of the Word of God. And as we carry out the Great Commission and make disciples, we will undoubtedly run into situations we've never been to before. In fact, the last couple of years has been a testimony to this, right? Where do we go in such times, we go to the authoritative, inerrant Word of God, prayerfully study it so that it may be a light to our path. Right? Now, it is easy to say, okay, I have a high view of God, or our church has a high view of the, of, of the Word of God. But do you read the Bible as if the health of your soul depends on it? Do you seek for it in the same way a baby cries for milk. You just some of you may have heard my baby cry out for milk just now, even through the closed doors in the far room. But you can still hear when 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 the baby's hungry, right? Do we Peter compares our longing for the milk of the Word? It needs to be that intense, right? Is there something preventing you from regularly, systematically reading the Word of God? Um, related to this is the third conviction for carrying out the Great Commission, and that is the call to preach, the call to preach. Preaching is God's ordained means of building up his people. The Old Testament prophets were preachers. We normally think of prophets as, okay, when you hear the word prophet, particularly a biblical prophet, don't think fortune teller. They're not fortune tellers, right? Uh, As much as they foretold of the future, they actually referenced just as much, if not more, the history of Israel. And w- w- why did they do that? Why did they foretell the future? Why did they reference the history of Israel? Because they were calling Israel to repent. They were preachers. And they were basing their call to repent on the history of Israel as much as they did on the future of Israel. On the basis of what God did for our people in the past. On the basis of what God will do to, for our people in the future. Repent. They were preachers primarily. The Old Testament prophets were preachers, John the Baptist was a preacher, Jesus was a preacher, the apostles were preachers, those who were mentored by the apostles, like Titus and Timothy, were preachers. The book of Acts begins and ends with preaching. Again, Acts chapter 2 records the birth of the church. What was the event that triggered the birth of the church? Acts sermon, uh, Peter's sermon, right, in Acts chapter 2. His sermon on Pentecost, and what's the heart of the message of his of, of his sermon, that Jesus is the Messiah, proven by how the events surrounding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are consistent with Old Testament prophecy. And he was very confrontational in his sermon. Uh, Acts 2, verse 36 Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain. That God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and the Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Couldn't have stated it more clearly. You killed our Messiah. The next verse calls for the response. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As a result, verse 41, 3,000 souls were saved that day. That was the birth of the church, right? The book of Acts begins with preaching. Acts 28, verse 23, Paul is at Rome under house arrest, waiting for his appointment, court appointment with Caesar. He was free to receive visitors, so he called the Jews in Rome and set a day where he could address them. Acts 28, verse 23, When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. From morning till evening, Paul was expounding the Old Testament showing to them that Jesus is the Messiah. The result, verse 24, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. So Acts begins and ends with preaching. And there are at least 10 recorded sermons in Acts. Acts chapter 2, Peter at Pentecost. Acts chapter 3, Peter after healing the beggar. Acts chapter 4, Peter to the Jewish religious leaders. Acts 7, Stephen before he was stoned to death. Acts 13, Paul at the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. Acts 15, James at the Jerusalem Council. Acts 17, Paul's at Mars Hill. Acts 22, Paul before the mob in Jerusalem. Acts 24, Paul before Felix. And Acts 26, Paul before Agrippa. And there are common elements of these sermons, similar to uh, what I highlighted uh, from, from Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. There is an explanation of, of Scripture, of the Old Testament, particularly how the Old Testament points to the the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and how that Jesus is their long-promised Messiah. There's also a call to repent, where sin is confronted, and disbelief, there's warning for disbelief, right? So these are some of the common elements of these sermons in Acts. And there are other references to preaching, not recorded sermons, but uh, 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 references to, to, to preaching, not necessarily that the sermon was recorded. Acts 5.42 says, Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Acts 20, verse 7, this is uh, when uh, Paul preached from dinner through midnight, and a kid named Eutychus fell asleep and fell to his death. Uh, But Paul miraculously brought him back to life. And so, the book of Acts is saturated with preaching. And the apostles' commitment to preaching is co- consistent with our lords. Uh, if you remember from Mark chapter 1, after a day where Jesus preached in the synagogue in the morning, and they went back to Peter's house, and he healed uh, Peter's mom, and, and, and when uh, uh, evening came, everybody in the town came to their front door so that uh, they could be healed. So everybody in the town uh, went to be healed in the evening, through the evening, and early in the next day, early morning the next day, Jesus went out to pray. And his disciples went looking for him because a crowd had got gathered uh, because they wanted more of the healing, right? But listen to what Jesus tells them in, in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 38. He says to them, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And so the apostles were committed to preaching. Jesus was committed to preaching. But how did people respond to apostolic preaching? Like we already said, many believed. Many rejected. The apostles, even with all their supernatural gifting from the Holy Spirit, could not control how people would respond to preaching. And neither do we. In fact, Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Whether people respond positively, indifferently, or violently, pastors are called to preach the word of God. Now, that is an excellent clear application for Pastor Mark, right? But, what if God hasn't called you to be a pastor? How do you cultivate the, the, the conviction of the call to preach if God hasn't called you to preach? Well, As a disciple of Christ, you are a learner of Christ. We are all learners of Christ. As learners of Christ, we are lifelong students of His Word. And so our response to the call to preach is to be teachable. Because every believer has to respond to the call to preach. Some are called to give the preaching. The rest of us are called to receive the preaching. Again, it is through the preaching of God's Word that God builds His people. that has been like that since Old Testament, right? God builds His people through the preaching of His Word. And so God may not have called you to preach, as in to give the sermon, to give the preaching, but God has called you to receive the preaching. So be teachable, right? How do you do that? Come to Sunday prepared, well-rested from Saturday night, um, Engage with scriptures. Don't just passively uh, receive information, but engage with it. Be like the Bereans, right? Paul commends the Bereans because they did not just passively receive the information from Paul, but they looked to the scripture themselves to verify that what Paul had taught them was actually according to scripture. And Paul commends them for that, right? We are all called uh, to respond to the preaching of the word of God whether we are called to preach or we are called to receive the preaching. Fourth uh, core conviction uh, for carrying out the Great Commission is the mandate of discipleship, the mandate of discipleship. Making disciples is the mission of the Great Commission, right? Uh, If you turn to Matthew 28, the main command there is make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Right. The main imperative, the main verb, the main command is to make disciples. And discipleship is the main focus of God's commission to his church. Discipleship involves sharing the gospel to those who don't know Christ. Um, it involves evangelism, but it also includes nurturing Christians unto spiritual maturity, bringing them up, to maturity so that disciples would obey all that Christ has commanded. And God has ordained the church to be the primary setting where believers are to be discipled, are to be uh, nurtured unto spiritual maturity. And what disciples looks like in one verse is summed up for us in Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of the bread, To the breaking of bread and the prayers. The Apostles' teaching we have preserved for us in the Bible. And again, going back to uh, the other core convictions, right? The authority of the Word of God, the call to preach. um, Without a commitment to the Word of God, our Sunday fellowship will just be a social club, right? Right? Uh, we wouldn't be much different from the other groups that would use this facility for their gatherings, right? What, what makes Christian fellowship unique is it is Christ who is the glue that, that, that binds our, 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 our fellowship. To the apostles' teaching we have preserved for us in Scripture, in the Bible, uh, fellowship means sharing in life, both good and bad, learning from, from one another, both from our successes and also from our failures, but frankly, sometimes we—it's there's more lessons to be learned from our failures and from our successes. Uh, bearing one another's burdens, confessing sin to one another, and all of this requires us to be open with one another, to be in each other's lives, right? We need to be able to set aside our Sunday's best in front of one another so that we can actually minister to one another, right? It's not just that... Um, Pastor Mark or the leadership of the church is, is, it's not just that they're the ones discipling everybody. Yes, they're, they're leading the discipleship, but they're equipping the rest of the flock to be ministering to each other. That's how, that's how God designed it. And that's how the witness of the church is amplified, right? Imagine a church where everybody Every member of the congregation is involved in each other's lives, is using their giftedness from the Lord to build up other believers. That church, won't, you, you wouldn't be able to keep that church from growing. There is nothing in this world that would keep such a church from exploding. Right? The breaking of bread. The Lord's Supper right? Uh, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Prayers for one another, for the church, for opportunities to preach the gospel, for the salvation of specific unbelievers. See, uh, a lot of times, discipleship sometimes is is kind of... programs can be helpful, it, it organization can be helpful, but sometimes... Um, when churches engage in discipleship, it's, it can be a little bit too programmatic. What a discipleship really is, it's an intentional relationship among believers. And the intention, the goal of that relationship is to promote Christ-likeness. Uh, but it's fundamentally a relationship among believers. The, the, the goal of that relationship is not just to be buddy-buddies, not just to have a social life, but the goal of that relationship is to encourage one another to become more and more like Christ. Paul, who was the prototype missionary, was not content to just share the gospel or even just to lead people to Christ. He was committed to seeing Christians mature in their walks with the Lord. This was why he planted churches Acts 15.36 shows us his motivation for the second missionary journey. He says to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. He was just concerned about their growth, about their walk with the Lord. Colossians 1.28 states Paul's goal in ministry. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And in Paul's letter to the Thessalonian believers, listen to the joy in Paul's words as he describes the testimony of the Thessalonian church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 2, he writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. to see the church in Thessalonica grow, mature, so much so that uh, they are impacting other churches. They're an encouragement to other churches. Paul's desire was to see believers mature in their walk with the Lord. Paul's ministry team was made up of, was made up of believers who were discipled unto spiritual maturity from the churches that he planted. Uh, Acts 20 verse 4 reveals to us Paul's ministry team. Sopater, the Berean, second missionary journey. The son of Pyrrhus accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, second missionary journey. Aristarchus and Segundus. And Gaius of Derby and Timothy. Again, Derby, first missionary journey. And the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, third missionary journey. What this tells us is that missionaries are the fruit of a local church's discipleship. So where do missionaries come from? They come from the local church. Again, as uh, the local church, disciples, believers unto spiritual maturity, God will call some, will set aside some for full-time vocational ministry, whether it's domestically, whether it's overseas, right? So the question for you is, how is your walk with the Lord? Are you growing? Are you struggling? If you're struggling, don't worry. Everyone struggles. Do you need help? If you need help, talk to Pastor Mark. Talk to the leadership of this church. They will help. Do you want to help those who need help? Again, talk to Pastor Mark. He will put you to work. That is how the church Uh, is designed to be. Again, if you are not plugged into this church, you are missing out. You are being deprived of of a very important spiritual nourishment if you are not uh, plugged into this church. The last core conviction for carrying out the Great Commission is the preeminence of Christ. Jesus is the one who, having all the authority in heaven and on earth, issued the Great Commission and because of this, commitment to Him is crucial for carrying out the Great Commission. The preeminence of Christ is the one conviction to rule them all. Devotion to Jesus is what holds the other core convictions together. We prioritize the local church, whose head is Christ. We submit to the authority of the Word of God, which points to Christ. We recognize the call to preach, the focus of which is Christ. We receive our mandate for discipleship wherein believers are made to become more and more like Christ. The Christian life is fundamentally about Jesus Christ. Conviction regarding the preeminence of Christ is what will propel us to endure hardships and trials as we seek to carry out the Great Commission. This was how it was for the early apostles. Again, in Acts chapter 5, we see how they respond to hostility. Acts chapter 5, verse 14, And more than ever, believers in the Lord were added to their number, multitudes of men and women. Verse 17, But the high priest rose up and those with him, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Um, They had the apostles arrested. God miraculously releases them from prison. In verse 20, an angel tells them, go stand and speak to the people in the temple and the whole message of this life. And so the next day, they did exactly what they were told. Verse 33, the Jewish council was enraged and wanted to kill them, but Gamaliel, a Pharisee, talked them down from doing that. Instead... They summoned the apostles, had them flogged, and charged them not to speak about Jesus. And then they they let them go. How did the apostles respond to this? Verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus... Is the Christ right? It's not that God supernaturally prevented them from feeling the pain of those thirty-nine lashes uh, when they got lashed. I mean, this was the same type of whip with the with the metal edges that uh, they they lashed Jesus with, right? It would have been bloody. Wouldn't have been any less bloody than that. Yet. For them, Jesus was worth the pain. Consider also Paul's recounting of his ministry to the Ephesians in Acts 20, verse 17. Paul talking to the Ephesian elders at Miletus. He tells them, verse 18, Acts 20, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. And with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What motivated Paul to remain faithful in a hostile environment was the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. More than anything else, Paul was committed to the preeminence of Jesus Christ. The desire for Christ was greater than anything else for Paul. And this is consistent with his writing, right? Philippians chapter 3, for, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And Paul's conviction about the preeminence of Christ is powerfully summed up in Philippians one twenty-one: for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. He is our master. We are his slaves. We find our purpose, our worth, our identity all in him. We must be committed to him as our Lord, as our master, our savior, our king, as our all in all, if we are going to, be, if we are going to faithfully carry out the Great Commission. As we seek to make disciples of all the nations, there will be opposition. There will be hardship. There will be problems. But where do we get the courage to stand up for Christ? Where do we get the conviction to remain faithful in the midst of persecution? From the conviction that Jesus is above all. It's all about him. And whatever suffering we have to endure this side of heaven, Jesus is worth it. He is preeminent. And so, these are the core convictions that will help us carry out the Great Commission, the priority of the local church, the authority of the word, the call to preach, the mandate for discipleship, the preeminence of Christ. But before we move on, I have to say this. If you are not in Christ, if you have not surrendered your life to him, none of what I have said applies to you, because if you are not in Christ, you cannot prioritize the local church because you are not part of the local church. If you are not in Christ, you will not submit to the authority of the Word of God because, as Paul wrote in Romans 8-7, your mind is set on the flesh if you're not in Christ, and those whose minds are set on the flesh are not able to submit to the law of God. If you're not in Christ, you will not recognize the counter preach because, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4-4, Satan, the God of this world, blinds your mind, keeping you from understanding the gospel of the glory of Christ. If you are not in Christ, you cannot obey the mandate for discipleship because discipleship is, a, is about growing to become more and more like Christ. If you are not in Christ, you are nothing like Christ. If you are not in Christ, Jesus cannot be preeminent in your life. Something else is preeminent in your life. And that something that is taking the place of Jesus in preeminence in your life is what the Bible calls an idol. And you need to ask God to reveal to you what your idol is. Maybe you, you know what your idol is. And you need to ask God to convict you about your idol so that you would turn away from your idol and turn to Christ, to Him and Him alone. You see, we're all made in the image and likeness of God. He made us, He made you, so that that you can make much of Him. But instead, in our sin, we have been making much of things that are not worthy to be made much of. Again, these are called idols. Uh, These things, we value them as preeminent, although they are not truly worthy of being preeminent. And because of this, you stand judged by God and will one day have to pay the consequences of your rebellion against him. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to do what none of us could ever do, live a perfectly obedient, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy life. And in God's appointed time, Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice, taking the place of those who rightly should be punished, For our sins. The one who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so, Jesus, having lived that perfect life, having given that sacrifice, can now offer salvation to those who place their faith in him. Because by faith, Jesus takes our place. The punishment that is due to our sins, he took upon himself on that cross. That's why he had to die. And the righteousness that he lives, he gives to you through faith. So turn away from your idols and turn to Christ. Confess to him that you have not submitted to his lordship. That you've been serving false gods. You've been making much of things that aren't worthy of being making much of. Confess to Him that you desire to submit to His Lordship, that you, you want to worship Him and serve Him and Him alone. And He will forgive you. He paid a heavy price to secure the forgiveness of sinners like us. There is grace in Christ. Go to Him. Right? And this is the message that we have for the world, right? Turn to Christ. Turn away from the false gods of health, wealth, influence, power, prosperity, popularity. Again, there has never been a better time for the church to be the church. In Acts 17.6, the persecutors of the church describe the church as those who have turned the world upside down. Our world needs to be turned upside down. God did it with the early church. He can do it again in our generation as we cultivate and embrace these core convictions. The priority of the local church, the authority of the word, the the call to preach, the mandate for discipleship, and the preeminence of Christ. I want to close with the words from uh, uh, the song, uh, a hymn that the Gettys wrote, entitled Facing a Task Unfinished. They write, Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. Where other lords beside thee hold their unhindered sway, where forces that defy thee defy thee still today, with none to heed their crying for life and love and light, unnumbered souls are dying in passing to the night. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours, fired by the same ambition, to thee we yield our powers." O Father who sustained them, O Spirit who inspired, Savior whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired. From cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake. Forth on thine errand send us to labor for thy sake. We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled, but no other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, And thank you for the great privilege you have given us to be part of your church. And as part of your church, we are called to take part in the Great Commission. It is a privilege of privileges because this is something that is precious to you, near and dear to your hearts. That that, that you would entrust us with this commission, that you would include us in this to take part in the expansion of your kingdom. What a, what a glorious privilege that is for all of us. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. And Lord, if there are some here who are not in Christ, I pray that you would bring conviction, Lord. Help them to realize their need for salvation and help them to understand the amazing gift of life that is in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.